0: This is part E of episode 1 How's Your Win from the Black Cats Run podcast. Um, we have an Instagram at Black Cats Run. Feel free to follow that. That will be a space down the road where folks can uh, contribute topics or questions that they want to hear discussed um, or you know points of view that they think should also be represented. So, feel free to check that out and give that a follow so that we have that as a space for further discourse here in part one e, what do we want to talk about? Well this is going to be our exit ticket by way of conclusion, and the goal here is to try to identify you know what are the actionable applications of this now little tiny caveat here when we say now we're getting to the actionable applications i actually firmly believe that the process of discussing all of these things up to this point is also actionable because anytime you're looking to make meaning or understand things in new or better or more effective ways i think you are moving towards and generating actionable uh, mindsets because you're thinking in different ways and that's going to cause you to view things in different ways, in more dynamic ways. It doesn't mean being rejective and replacing with some other dogma. It means increasing our flexibility and our capacity to think in a meaningful sense about the variables that we're encountering, right? And we're trying to empower ourselves to not look for this algorithmic notion, right? I think maybe a lot of people instinctively would question why could a running watch supposedly know um, everything there is to know about your recovery or about your training um, and these kinds of things. And yet, I'm sure there are people out there who sort of displace that skepticism and assume, well, you know, this must be the way to do this. Um, But this isn't algorithmic. People are not engineered I think we've made reference at some point to the idea that when we think about sport right, and the context in which that emerges, it's emerging emerging, excuse me, let's try that word again it's emerging in an industrial space with some very rigid Victorian, conservative fixed concepts about people and social class and the capacity of individuals and that people had inherent attributes, and those attributes were to be identified. I mean, you think about the way in which concepts of intelligence testing emerge in this time period, and the U.S. military, for example, around World War I, doing testing where they would give, you know, questions where it might be like a light bulb missing the filament, and you'd have to identify what was missing in that object. Well. In the 19-teens, I don't really think that, you know, electric lighting and and light bulbs were this commonly consumed or utilized item. So there could have been plenty of people who just wouldn't recognize that. But the willingness at the time was to sort of say, that well, that's representative of fundamental intelligence and that we can assess somebody's capacities or what they're suited for on that basis. And that's, I think, tells us a lot about where thinking was at that time in general. And so the systems, right, that we've described in the general and try to be also move towards being a little more specific, right, systems have emerged based on this idea of a discipline-oriented approach. Um, And that comes from this manufacturing industrial model. Right, this managerial model, this efficiency model. I think one thing that would be stereotypically emblematic of that would be the Ford Motor Company, but also other businesses and areas of industry that follow that too, which is, you know, how can we get the most productivity out of people? And, you know, a sort of sad interpretation, which I don't agree with, which I guess is why I'm saying it's sad, would be that the rise of you know, unions through progressive political movements at the time, you might, you know, crudely identify as people's disinterest in in working, which, frankly, why would you want to do those jobs? They're awful, tedious, boring, right? But in a worldview of that time, that kind of Victorian classist Western, uh, Anglo-Western cultural space, I think the view was that most of these people weren't capable of any kind of higher level of thought, right? That they basically were kind of robots. And that concept of society and distributed ability goes all the way back to Plato's Republic and probably in other places too that I'm not aware of. But in Plato's Republic, right, div- to divide society into the, you know, philosopher class, this warrior class and the rest of the people you know the gold the silver and the bronze and the majority the vast majority of people plato says are in the bronze class but that's an ex- and that they just want to drink you know and eat and be lazy and i think that's a common perception of people who have had the benefit of education and opportunity and socioeconomic flexibility it's easy to then arrive at a different destination as an individual. Just like as an athlete for whom your system of training happened to work for you, it's easy to arrive at the conclusion that what you're doing is inherently effective. But that's not necessarily valid because to get to that point, you had to be one of the people who wasn't screened out by this discipline method. Right. And one way we've said to sort of get through that screening is to be in a situation where physiologically the workouts um, which are being asked to do, which might be uh, designed to reflect uh, expectations of performative acts of discipline rather than what's like optimal for competitive development. Um, Although we're also saying that the mindset or the paradigm is that performative acts of discipline aren't performative. The mindset is that, like, acts of discipline, right, is the act of competition. And so the transference is supposed to be that if you engage in something that requires discipline, it will make competition more effective because if you do something more discipline oriented, and especially if the discipline, um, is of a greater level of intensity or demand than the competition than it should make the competition easy. And that's also um, a, a prevailing uh, view that I think still exists, which is like, how can you make uh, the competition easy? Which maybe isn't a bad idea per se, but you can very quickly take that, we're suggesting, in a really wrong um, direction. And by a wrong direction, what we're suggesting is the wrong direction would be to move towards like a okay, well, we just need to go out and just like crush ourselves and you know experience pain, right? No pain, no gain kind of idea, because it's not just about physiological response, or almost like the physiological response is secondary to that mental thing, right? 90% mental, 10% physical. But the belief of these sort of that it's worth screening people out is a core cultural belief at the time. Ideas about training in modern sport are really starting to emerge, you know and yes, you know people are there's evidence of people running and you know trying to time things i mean obviously, the mechanism of timing and the ability to construct and mass produce produce watches um, for a lot i mean most sports have some aspect of timing involved um, you know baseball is probably one one of the few instances where Um, you don't see that. And I want to say Cricket as well, but I don't know if I'm embarrassing myself because there's a time component of Cricket that I'm not aware of, but I don't think there is because I'm pretty sure Cricket was something that established well before um, sort of the mass proliferation of, you know, handheld timing devices. But that's also, the timing device is also a product of industrialism. It's also a product of streamlining and efficiency and this idea of, of calibrating stuff on that, the, that basis of what can you do per time being the most meaningful. And we've seen, you know, today that time performances and, and running have totally displaced things. And you've seen now that you have a power meter as a system of measurement in cycling, you've seen that totally displace things. Um, you've seen, uh, and certainly in swimming, right, it, just like running the clock, the time, uh, More significant, and I think you even see record progression in swimming happening at a different rate, Um, you know, happens more quickly and easily than it does in the sport of running, which I think just creates even more emphasis on the value of the time performance. So these approaches, right, are coming from this worldview at the time, and I think that's the concept of bias. In a pop culture sense, we use bias to sort of slander people. And the accusation is that, well, bias is a sign of somebody's ineptitudes in in thinking, or it's a sign of wrongness. And I mean, maybe in some instances it can be, right? Because bias can lead us to, you know, miss the best possible conclusion. But the other more accurate understanding of bias is to say that bias is inherent. Like we're all producing viewpoints on the world that are influenced by experiences we have. And that's bias. Right. And that idea, right, that like to understand and try to build more effective systems or to ask the right questions about systems of training and ask the right questions about what it means to be, to have the athletic experience requires us to be aware of the things that are influencing our points of view. Right. Not to claim that we can be like bias free per se, but to claim, to like recognize that, well, we need to like account for those things as variables, right? And, you know, weigh our decision-making and our reflection accordingly. And that's one piece of what's actionable. But opening through that conversation or that discussion, our perspectives to sort of a broader array of possibilities, that's actionable. And the act of discussing is useful. And I go to a lot of professional settings uh, through my actual through my job where there's this prevailing narrative or perspective of like well let's actually talk about things that are useful and the act of discussing is useful but what happens is when those discussions get um, censored or shut down or points of view aren't sort of considered to be sufficiently positive or in keeping with the um, you know, belief that you have to manage, um, you know, the employee's mindsets, um, you know, in order to be managerially successful, I think that that's when that stuff is uh, not so good. And that's why the purpose of this podcast is to just discuss this stuff and try to apply multiple different perspectives. And later in the podcast, I'm going to be trying to bring in um, a variety of different people that I know to share what they think and not to reinforce things that I am saying because I'm not trying to find certain truisms. I'm trying to share where my thinking is at because I think when we hear other people's thinking, we develop our own thinking. And if you reach conclusions that are congruent or in keeping with conclusions that I reach or things that I suggest, I hope that that's because the reasoning makes sense to you as an independent thinker, not because you've sort of decided... That I, as a mouthpiece, have some sort of authority and that that should be submitted to. When we think about things that are more actionable, though, in that traditional sense, that's also useful to talk about. Because if the discussion has been good and effective and productive and it's expanded our way of thinking a little bit, then now we should be at a point where we can start to see that and start to, like, apply that forward, right? That's the point, is... Are there things that can be taken away and can we create changes in perspective that are actually meaningful and lead to tangible things? Because the athletic experience, the experience of training, the experience of sport is supposed to, supposed to be, like, meaningful and and impactful and should have some tangibility. Well, I'm trying to make up words off the top of my head. Uh, tangibility, right? Whatever. We'll pretend that's a word. Um. We're trying to create something that's that's real original premise to this as introduction was that journalists uh, asking Robert Williams the question how's your wind and we sort of took that to give an example of the ways in which we talk about sport isn't really standardized and part of that is the compartmentalization of experience and the belief that there are systems specific to certain sports, and then there are certain subsystems specific to certain experiences within sports, and you know specialization and specificity are definitely valid things. But if we come back to that question, how's your wind? I think there's actually a lot more validity to that that is belied or not initially recognizable because of the anachronistic quality that that has, the sort of how are people still talking like that reaction that we might have uh, if we are coming from the perspective of people who do these kinds of endurance sports where we at least like to pretend that we're more in touch um, with a stronger idea of physiology and principles of training and stress, strain, stimulus, and adaptation. Because that question, how's your win, is basically a reflection of, you know, are you out of breath or not, right? Are you like hyperventilating? Do you feel like your head's in a paper, you're breathing through a paper bag, right, or not? Which is then in itself a question of how, like, are you feeling and are you feeling comfortable? And it, I think it's based on this belief that the basketball player, the athlete in, in the game of basketball is going to be better and more effective if they're comfortable, now, I don't actually think that basketball approaches conditioning in a really good way. But I think they're asking the right question, which isn't necessarily the question we ask in running. You know, we say, how does it feel? And we say it feels easy because that's what we're supposed to say, even though it doesn't. And then that gets coaches excited and they're like, wow, now my athletes can produce even better times for my spreadsheet um, and and we can run that like that, right? We we push them harder. And I would coach and I wouldn't time things. I wouldn't record them, you know. And I mean, maybe I'm slightly overstating that. Sometimes I would look to see and I'd say, okay, what kind of, where are we right now to calibrate and get a frame of reference? Because it is useful to know if over time people are at, you know, a same approximate effort producing faster performances over measured Courses you know in specific sessions, that's one way to try to quantify or verify that your training interventions are working. but we didn't try to make a standardized mindset of okay, the purpose of workouts is to produce times. I tried to encourage the mindset that the purpose of training and workouts is to induce certain levels of exertion because um, you know how can we be strong? and powerful, and in control when we're doing hard things is the central question. Because being strong, powerful, and in control, I think, combined to create what the experience of feeling good in athletics really is, what that really means. And that's what we need to try to do. So it's not necessarily likely that we're asking this question in the interview of Robert Williams, Because, you know, we, and I'm saying we here to sort of reference this idea of like the journalist as proxy for what the public wants to know, um, which might be a little idealistic, but for the purpose of what we're trying to say here, it's fine to say that. And, you know, it's probably not likely that that's representative of this deeper question, right? It might be just that in that concept of we're trying to relate to, the athlete by applying the vernacular of the sport, even though we're kind of an outsider always because we're not the professional athlete within that sporting space, right? But we're trying to, you know, gain access and understanding by using what we perceive the vernacular to be. So I am, you know, making mountains out of molehills, but that's the point is to take these things and inspire further thinking, you know, but if asking how's your wind is an original question, maybe that is what we want to be doing. And why it's an original question, I mean, that was the question that was in Burt Wilson Marathon Winner. And you have to think that maybe stayed in a different version. I mean, not just the fact that it would have been in Finnish, but not English, but in a different conceptual way, but still similar. Maybe that's the question that's behind Pavo Nurmi. Right And so, when he's out there working out with his stopwatch, and I think he would was somebody who my recollection is would run his records with his stopwatch and he would pick a specific pace and do that. I mean, he's introducing a strategy to try to engage with that that problem, right of like how to do harder things, right? and a hard thing isn't necessarily the same thing as a disciplined thing because hard things can be experienced and addressed in ways that don't meet that archetype of discipline. For Pavo Nermi imposing the stopwatch, that's a mindset that I think makes a lot of sense in that world's, uh, in that cultural space, at least that Western cultural space that we've described. You know, of industrial uh, production, management, and then social ideas of, classism, discrimination, hierarchy, fundamental ability, right? And all those things come into play and make certain conclusions logical or self-evident and certain things easy to be dismissed. What I'm suggesting is that it's not about trying to find acts of discipline, engage with those acts of discipline, and then through that process create better results in performance or see improvements in fitness I think that we want to do is we want to take the hard and make it easy I want to go back to something I mentioned in the last segment which I am realizing I I didn't necessarily make clear I talked about how uh, we would see with the cross-country team that I coached we would see people get to the state meet and suddenly run maybe a minute faster. And I think I said go from like low 17 to low 16, which in that bubble of performance, uh, there is like a big difference between, you know, low 17 minute cross country races were considered good. But when you get to low 16, now you're on the cusp of really doing something. Because if you get under 16 minutes, that was like phenomenal. And in that space, right? And that in different states, you know, in different spaces, right, there's those numbers that are going to be different, right, which I think sort of shows the, the value of that, right, every sort of, you know, it's a fishbowl, right, it's its own, its own context, and it creates the own, you know, these ideas of what's meaningful and isn't meaningful, which may be in the big picture, like those performances might not seem good to certain people for that level, and I am aware of that, and the point isn't to trumpet those things as you know outstanding but it's like hey you know this is the frame of reference within that space within that sample right we need to know those parameters if we're going to interpret the significance of what's going on in that sample correctly so the people that we were seeing make these jumps weren't a part of our team they were people part of other groups and i want to break this down a little bit more so again that random variance wasn't in our runners We're seeing this coming from other places. And I remember being at the state meeting hearing a coach encouraging the athletes by yelling out to them, you know, remember the big workout. And, you know, to me, I had to sort of bite my tongue when I heard that. We kind of looked the other way because I think I got a pretty funny look on my face immediately because it was like, I don't, I mean, that was just insane. You know, like that's not going to improve performance. But what that showed was like this core belief that executing the special workout, right, that which we're saying we can better understand what that means now by saying, you know, this act of significant discipline, um, you know, that that's going to transfer into your ability to handle the demands of the state meet, right? Like, the state meet is the hardest race. Like, that's not true. Like, a race is a race is a race. It's just sometimes there's more people at or better than your current ability level. And sometimes there's less people at or better than your current ability level, right? And I guess if you're like the best runner and you can just sort of run a minute faster than the next best runner, well, you have the option of running at the tempo of the next best runner and then friggin' destroying them in the last 200 meters because you'll have all this energy, you know, and you have to have incredible speed. I mean, a lot of what we think of as speed is really just people not being... Um, at at a deficit, and they can just lift their tempo dramatically. Um, It's not, but the concept of speed is also, you know, an act of discipline, that the most disciplined athletes mentally, right, they turn up the pain again, and now they're at a 17, and they're performing this incredible, you know, finishing kick, right, when really your ability to accelerate has to do with not being tired, which I think is probably what um, Arthur Lydiard recognized, and that's why he says, about Peter Snell, that Peter Snell wasn't, you know, it's not like Peter Snell was basically the fastest person. I think he actually says the opposite, that Peter Snell was one of the, you know, over 200 meters, one of like the least impressive, you know, athletes among the contemporaries that he was, you know, racing at these championship events. So, one conclusion, um, right, that I talked about is the idea of, of peaking, right, and that's, the conclusion that we reached is that Special training towards peaking is a joke. And there's evidence in research, though, that supports peaking. And I tried these protocols, and it didn't work. We, it had a negative effect. And it wasn't necessarily that the athletes went backwards. They just showed no real improvement. And then they would all finish, and they would walk away and immediately be like, I felt so bad, nothing felt good. And in hindsight, it's like, well, okay, why would running, you know, a couple four hundreds really fast, you know, three or four days before the meet, why would that make sense? But it, I mean, when you get in, when you have the mindset that, well, you know, there's this knowledge out there that I'm not really going to understand, but this is just what's true, um, it encourages us to not question things and just to accept things and be like, well, that's hard. You know, when hard things are productive, so this must be productive. And, you know, realize that, like, well, if you don't feel good, you can't run well, right? And that's that same concept that I'm saying. The value of asking, how's your wind, is also getting at that concept, right? Like, for your runner goes for the mile mark, and if you were to ask them, if you're able to ask them, how's your wind, you know, um, then, and they're, like, not good. Well, they're screwed. They're screwed. And I, our mantra became, and I would repeat this before every race, patient um uh- per, uh persistent progressive um which was the idea of you know you would start out and you needed to feel good at the mile mark, you know five sevenths of the race you should feel in you know in control and strong, and then okay, the last two sevenths you can start to really push until you know what can you do beyond um, where you feel good? Do you are you able to develop that effort from there? And that's I think key, right? Be patient, be persistent, um, you know, be progressive. And I guess maybe now I'm questioning as I'm saying this. You know, maybe you could say it the other way. You know, maybe it's be patient, be progressive, be persistent, right? Maybe it was more of the point, but it doesn't really matter. The idea is that to our, I mean, I haven't used that phrase in practice and. A while, so like maybe I'm not remembering exactly, but the point was that you're going and you're saying, Okay, the first mile is easy. The second mile you're developing your effort, and it's in the last mile that you have to really sort of lean into that, and that's when that's sort of the pain that we sometimes associate with exercise, you know, the demand is happening. But if you've managed your effort well through the first two-thirds, the first five sevenths of that Activity, you're going to be in a position to, you know, be excited and want to execute that. So our conclusion was that feeling good is what's important. And the acts of peaking didn't work to that end. But there's also all this evidence of people who seemingly peaked at the state meet. And part of it maybe is like imposed vernacular like, well, we're just going to insist that they peaked because they ran a really good race and we want to say people peaked because that's cool to be able to say that people peaked. So they peaked. But I think that peaking is an illusion because if you're doing this really intensive training, and this is what we sort of suggested, is we would race, obviously, the same teams in different contexts throughout the season, which was about maybe 10 weeks, 10 to 11 weeks total from like, the uh, beginning of organized practice to the last meet, and it you know wouldn't be until the end of the season that people would start to run well, but like they wouldn't beat us, we would still be way better than them. Um, so I think what was happening is their just performance level was being repressed because they were engaging in these acts of discipline um, all season, which basically were saying is essentially too fatiguing, and instead of feeling good, they were trying to like destroy themselves and like ritualistically purify them through, you know, acts of sacrifice, in a, in a sense. And it was only when they unloaded that at the end of the season, that that worked well. So maybe for them running three 400s really fast, which I'm not, I don't know that that's what they did. But just as an example of like a suggested peak workout. Well, if they had been running 12 400s, like way too hard for the preceding six to eight weeks, even if those 3-400s are still too hard, that's less work than they had been doing previously, so they're going to have more energy. And they might have a higher adrenal response in the race because they finally don't feel as bad. And that's going to kick in, and it's going to stimulate them, and they're going to, right again, get that adrenal effect, which is going out there and, whoa, now I'm doing stuff I, I haven't been able to do before. Whereas for our runners... Like the goal is to feel good all along. And then if you were imposing these peaking mechanisms, well, for us, that was like asking us to do more than we'd been doing. And the correction was to be like, we already feel good, okay? And we want, the key thing to break down here is, and this is an actionable conclusion, is it's incorrect, I believe, to say that, well, you know, those athletes did better. I think those athletes would have been from the other teams, They did better than you guys at the end of the season. No, because they didn't beat us. We still crushed them. And, you know, those groups, those programs basically could have been running well all along. So they were basically just denying the athletes the opportunity to be running at this quality level all along. And I think that's probably what have improved their ability to race well. Because they would have had better training, would have been more effective if they had felt good, would have been more productive. I um, mean, like holding athletes out of races, which to me is, first of all, let them race. That's the point of the sport, right? But it seems like every program, no matter how good their best runner was, would basically decide well, we've got a best runner, so we're just going to hold them out of half of the meets. Um, and there was uh, the last season I coached. There was a guy uh, from another team who didn't race, who did one meet the whole season to be, so to ensure they were qualified so they could actually participate in the state meet. And our best runner, you know, had to do battle with this guy. It made it really an interesting kind of uh, story or narrative, right? The guy who sat out all season versus the our runner who, like, you know, was doing it what people thought was like the old school way, you know, raced and raced and raced. And our runner prevailed. And I would say that, that um, the runner who sat out was probably in a, in the, and this is something we'll talk about in later episodes, the concept of talent, but that runner was probably, you know, in the colloquial sense, more talented than our runner, but it didn't matter. And I think if our runner hadn't done all of that racing, I don't think that they would have had the, you know, cognitive development and tuning necessary um, to get to that, to do that. And if our runner had tried, um, you know, if we had imposed a peaking protocol, I think then our runner definitely uh, wouldn't have been able to handle that. But, you know, kudos to him because he really executed well. And I think he, you know, showed and demonstrated the benefit of all of the work that he had done in order to, you know, take that guy to the woodshed week after week in that postseason. So I think, you know, it speaks a lot to that difference. So, you know, what we were trying to do um, is, you know, we did work that was more effective. Like our strategy was this feeling good strategy and trying to get the athletes to where, you know, they were running and they weren't winded, right, to use that old school language. But we're going back to that original question from the beginning of this long century of sport, how's your wind, and we're pursuing it in a different way. Right? We're saying, okay, let's build a new response to this. Let's feel good. So we tried to do work that was more effective. And that's what, as athletes, I think we want to do. And I'm talking about in the context of running, but I'm speaking in general. I think this applies equally to cycling um, because I think the concepts of endurance training aren't domain and system specific. They aren't siloed like that. I think they're ubiquitous. And I think it's just then, you know, interpreting, okay, what would be the specific manifestation of these concepts? And it has to be done like that because different athletes have different levels at any given time, you know, within their, and then within the different sports they're doing, you know, different amounts of work are possible or impactful. So we had a higher load of training. We did more training. um, And I got some comments after I was done coaching you know, ins- insinuating that we were running 100 miles a week, which is untrue. First of all, we did not count the mileage, or I didn't. I mean, the athletes may have, but I didn't count that in any way, shape, or form. Um, Total that up. I didn't care. It was irrelevant, right? The point is, how are the athletes feeling? But, you know, looking back, we were running maybe at most maybe 60 miles a week of running. Um, But, you know, most of our runs... The majority of our runs, of our, you know, good aerobic mileage runs, you know, that kind of active training, which is 80 to 85% of what you do, but never really seems to have a cool label like the workout or the long run or recovery day. But just all of the other stuff, which makes it all work, that zone two training, I guess we could say. If we want to use a little Indigo San Milan reference, that mitochondrial development training um, is an act that's really like, Focused on, you know, for us, was like running, you know, 8.30 to 9.30 pace, you know, for, you know, 65 to 80 minutes. And, you know, considering we had, you know, which in our Petri dish was considered exceptional, we had, you know, 14 or 15 guys running under 16.50 and, you know, three to four guys uh, running... You know, under 1550 or under, excuse me, under 16 minutes in the 1550s to the 1530s, you know, to then be out training at that tempo was like considered super unorthodox. And that's like, you know, the Jack Daniels, Daniels running formula that is not endorsed by that model. It's unacceptable to be running that slow. It shouldn't create that result. But like it was about feeling good. It's not about applying the system because that's what it says and that these are the acts of discipline within the system. And so we must do those things. Like it doesn't matter how they feel. And in and fact, if they feel worse, then that's good because that means we're really, you know, engaging in discipline and we're really having to set aside, you know, our hedonistic nature to, you know, just try to like, you know, be lazy and find instant gratification. But, you know, because we felt good, we were able to do a higher load of training than what other people were doing. And I'm sure there were individual athletes um, who, from teams who probably were running way more total volume of activity than we were at least measured in miles. I think that because of our training pace was so relaxed that you know, our actual you know, volume measured in terms of minutes may have actually been the highest, which I think raises another question of like, you know, how do we want to measure or quantify the quantity of training that we're doing? Because I think when we do that uh, in different ways, it can cause us to reach very different conclusions. When I think about how the Lydiard athletes ran, you know I think that sort of core um you know running volume of a hundred miles a week, which seems to be the total volume of that you know steady aerobic work, which you might say is that zone two zone three type intensity um, I know that on uh, this um Steve Magnus's podcast, you know, they sort of speculated that they those guys were running, you know, basically under 5 minute pace all the time, and that could be true, but at the same time it just seems, you know, unlikely to me that that's really how they were approaching training if they were doing that for 6 months. I don't know about that. That just seems a little extreme. And again, it's like, well, how were they really, you know, measuring their training at that time? And they weren't using GPS watches. You know, they would have been using watches you know, you know, pocket watches, you know, stop mechanical stopwatches over courses and how accurate are those courses? Like how are they measuring those, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, but right. I say that those guys were running, you know, maybe closer to averaging, maybe six, six minute pace, you know, so they're hundred miles a week. That's about 10 hours a week. And I think our guys, we were probably ended up doing about 10 hours a week of training, So I suppose in an indirect way, you could reach the conclusion that we were sort of applying that concept of like, okay, you know, right, when you get up around 10 hours a week, you start to see really good things happen, right, at least for the distances of that length. And we know now that people can race, you know, 50 kilometers and uh, 50 miles and 100 miles and 200 miles of running too, which then, you know, throws the whole concept of 100 miles a week as being this extreme you know, overtraining thing out the door. So because of our higher load, right, that was possible because we focused on feeling better and running at a slower tempo was a way to do that, right? Running at a slower tempo is a way to do that. And same is true with riding. Um, one of the athletes I work with was cycling, um, who has, you know, from performance, has gotten herself to the point where she's, you know, objectively established last year that she's a top 20 uh, U.S. Um, Women's rider, you know, when we go on train, it's like pretty slow. The running, and we do a combination of running and riding. And in a later podcast, I want to talk about, you know, why is that combination more effective than just cycling um, for the sake of cycling and why maybe for running, a combination of running and cycling might be more effective too. But the running and the cycling we do is slow um, because that allows us to feel good. And when we feel good, it makes it easier to train. And in the cross country context, right, as we're tackling the season, like the intensity and um, the frequency of training is also then more effective because when we have a higher load of training, that's not just overall, but the sessions we're doing are better. So we would, at the beginning of the season, we would do our 18 mile run, which was the only run I really cared about how far it was. Um, and and then you don't need to do that. You could have just said time, but I knew approximately that, you know, they would maybe run that at about 7.50 to 8.15 pace depending on the weather and whatever. But we'd have a course and I'd pick a course for the year that had about 1,700 to 1,800 feet or as close to 100 feet per mile as I could. And it wouldn't just be one big hill. It would be hills throughout the run. And that was our long run. And then um, the next day we would do... You know, 65 to 75 minutes at, you know, 8:30 to 9:30 pace, and would be flat, you know, and relaxed, and we run on the trails, and then we do some, you know, strides. Some, I would call them floats because I didn't want people to sprint them. You know, my experience in high school was doing these strides occasionally, like especially the day before the meet, and they'd be like 60 meter, you know, and they would be like, you know, absolute flying sprints. And my senior year, I, you know, hurt my hamstring a little bit. Um, doing this stuff, and 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 being sort of pitted against the, you know, guy on the team who happened to be the uh, reigning state champion in the mile, you know, which I think I was actually quicker, and quicker than, you know, perception would have it, but, you know, just doing that, you know, and the strain of that, you know, I hurt my hamstring. Did that derail my athletic career? No, but it's something where, like, if I work hard or I really try to go fast, I will still start to feel that in that particular spot. And that goes back to something earlier I talked about is that performing acts of discipline like causes people to hurt themselves in ways that are permanent and just don't seem to go away. And, um, you know, for me, you know, that's pretty trivial. And I've been pretty lucky with sports injury in general. But like the fact that that's still prevalent and, and you know, in college, if we do fast work in, in 200s, I would start to feel that in that same spot, in that hamstring. Um, so for us, right, not pushing it to that level. So, but then on the Wednesday, we would do, um, 20 by 200, where we jog for a half an hour, we'd execute 200 on, 200 off, which you might think of sort of like a structured or supervised kind of a fart lick. Um, and I sort of just articulated it as that zone four to zone five feel. And these guys, you know, the top 15 guys running is just in mass around this, you know, might start out running like 40 and might finish running 32 or 33. And it didn't matter that they did that. That's just what happened is they would feel good. And as they would feel good, the rhythm would develop. And they'd feel stronger. And I would right, encourage them to cruise at the end because I knew that you would start to feel charged up, right? And you'd, and you'd feel good. And that, but the point is that allowed you to execute that work. And that dynamic of, being, of going around the track, doing 2200s feels like an epic thing. Right, but it's actually not that difficult. You're just doing five miles, where you're just sort of, or 8,000 meters, where you're just sort of alternating, like, okay, up tempo, relaxed, up tempo, relaxed, right? And the recovery for that was probably, you know, 80 seconds. They would probably take them about 80 seconds to jog the other 200. So it was very rhythmic and it felt good. And if it was hot, we stopped after 10, and people would get some water. And we do the next 10. It wasn't critical to do it. And then we would jog for another half an hour right? And so we're doing these things, we're focused on feeling good, but we're also feeling good on the level of like, wow, we're training, and we're doing this awesome training, and this is so cool and exciting, right? And I really reinforced it, nobody's training like we are. And that was true, but it's also significant to feel that way, because that's exciting about training, it's like to do things. I talked about like, this is our creative space, like we get to invest in that. And, you know, making sure to the extent that I could, that the athlete's felt that and then like we're a part of like we're all doing this together like we're applying this unique process and we're benefiting from that and that that should be validating and exciting Thursday again we would do the training where it would be you know 65 to 80 minutes relaxed same, same thing we did on Tuesday and then on Friday we would do um we went to the a park and it had a loop that was about a half a mile plus or minus more or less and we would do three sets of five. And in between, we would take 20 minutes easy jogging, very slow jogging, and then, you know, hydrating. And we'd do three sets of five. And to be honest, people didn't necessarily do all of them. You know, and in any of these given workout, I, I and we would do this pattern for the first three weeks, and then the racing would start, and then we'd move into other things where the workouts would be moderate. So this was sort of, you know, If you wanted to say we had a hardest training period of the season, this would be that. Although the long runs continued up until um, the week before the state meet. And then we pulled that back to a run of about 11 or 12 miles that was literally as flat as we could make it. Although in hindsight, I think if I had continued coaching, I probably would have um, made some adjustments to that and not backed off the long run as much. Because I think that had normalized so much in the system That, you know, by the end of the championship season, I think people were just starting to go flat. Um, But there could be other explanations for that. And again, right, I didn't have an opportunity to continue to explore that. But, you know, with those 800s, you know, some people would be able to do all of them. But some people might do two sets or they might, you know, do five and they might do three of the next set. And it it didn't matter, right? When people were done, they were done, you know, because and they were they were empowered to talk about that when they said they were had enough, that was good enough for me, you know, because the norms of the sport already are telling them to push themselves, you know, and what I need to do is encourage them to chill out and listen to their body, right, and not push themselves too hard, so if they're telling me they're tired, they're tired, right, and when you start to feel tired, you're tired, right, recognizing that, and I talked about how for me, I still have a problem where I try to go too hard too early because I think that's what it needs to feel like. And the reality is it shouldn't feel like that because you can't perform well if you don't feel good. You know, maybe, like, theoretically, if you could go faster, you'd go faster, but the reality is you can't go that fast. So when you try to do that, you end up just going slower. So the optimal performance is a space where you actually should find that you feel pretty good. And in our training right, we also weren't trying to do this discipline concept of let's get as close to or as specific to the demands of, you know, racing as possible and experience that race pain. Um, That's not what we were doing, right, which I mean in a modern terms, in a Jack Daniels sense, you know, and again, not to, you know, poo-poo Jack Daniels unfairly, I mean, I think very bright person who did a lot of cool research, Um, and I think all of the things that we think about are going to be subject to review and critique later, and I think that's the value of our contribution, is that we give people something else to think about and to build on, and that's how rational knowledge progresses, just like the things here. I think even within the scale of this podcast, we'll probably come back and be like, wow, how did we say that at that point? That's idiotic to think about now. And the training there, right, to pursue this is, uh, for us, was like aerobic training, right? Which to us was sort of like around, I, to me, was the concept of how can we take the concept of lactate threshold, you know, as this benchmark of like, okay, if you go above a certain point, like you're no longer getting that aerobic benefit. And that that point is at a much lower tempo than you'd think. So for our top guys, you know, we sort of approximated, okay, you guys can probably run 10 miles a little faster than 60 minutes. So we said, okay, about 6 minute pace, 620 to 6 minute pace, that's our aerobic work. Um, and so when we did things that were aerobic, like doing you know a 4k effort, you know 15 minutes you know at six minute pace or maybe two times 4k at six minute pace, that might be like a moderate workout we do during uh, the season once the competitions were going, right? Or do a 4k go out, run some miles um, at, at zone two at the mitochondrial level, and then come back and do some 200s. But like when we're doing stuff like that or doing the 20 by 200s in that initial lead into the season, like we're doing this, you know, that's the muscular work. And my philosophy with the muscular work is like it always should be less than 40 seconds. Right. Um, should be less than 40 seconds. And yeah, you can do something sometimes where you like are doing longer uh, than that. And it's, you know, demanding muscularly and aerobically, but that requires more um, energy, both physical and mental. You can't really do that many reps. And basically what you're doing now is once again, you're just doing a uh, workout simulating a race, right? I'm like, okay, well, if I break this into this workout, I can basically execute faster intensity or a higher level of work than I'm going to do in the race. Right. And we just didn't do that. And my feeling was we have the races in the schedule. We'll go out and we'll do those. okay. And that's what we need to do. And that's when like the natural adrenal response of racing, which is you need that adrenal response to do that kind of discipline training. So races, the race environment already brings that to the table because we get to put on our uniforms and we get to put on our race shoes and like all of these things about entering into that liminal space bring up that level of arousal and now we can go and we can crush it and we would go and we would run 18 miles on monday and we would run five miles we run 40 minutes um you know before the the weekday meets and then we go out and we put it down and then we go out and we jog for a while after and like they ran hard in those meets and they could do that um and they would still be running you know good times um, at those meets, and that was the goal. And that was beneficial training, right? And there was your, you know, accessing that, but you're accessing this in a fun way because you're doing it in the context of a race, right? That's when it's fun to to work really hard and challenge yourself and feel like you're doing something epic and intense versus other teams holding guys out. We would see guys doing workouts, you know, doing intervals training, and then not racing us on those those weekday meets. And then we'd go to the meets and the invitational meets and we'd crush those guys anyway. Um so it doesn't mean by the way that the things we weren't doing were hard but it means that we you know tried to look at the energy we had around that in different ways that like feeling good doing hard things was important and i think that the discipline approach relies on trying to create that liminal space of racing trying to create that outside of racing and using that to trigger that adrenal response like, like happens in racing. For me, I can always do things in races that I just can't do in training. And I have, um, a good friend of mine is the, is, does exactly in training what he can do in racing. And I'm going to try to have him on at some point, um, you know, hopefully multiple times because I think he brings a really different, um, you know, perspective of personal experience to this stuff. I don't, wouldn't consider him to be a disciple of the discipline model, but, you know, he's an example of somebody whom I think doesn't really agree with the discipline model either, but, you know, has other ways to approach and, and find training to be effective. So he'll be interesting to talk to if we can get him on here. Um, but, like, the reason why I think it might be tangibly and definably bad to constantly be in that liminal space um, in training is because when you, adrenaline also tracks with cortisol, which is stress hormone, and having elevated levels of cortisol really isn't good there's this TED talk by Richard Wilkinson, where he talks about the psychosocial effects of inequality, and one of the possible causalities that he 's hypothesizing um, in doing this is that you know comparative psychology in more unequal societies and athletics can be something that can be its own micro social space of a very unequal society. And teams can be like this too, that, you know, we experience higher levels of of stress and higher levels of stress or cortisol and adrenaline, although it can be very stimulating, is also releasing that um, cortisol. And if you're doing training that like in order to complete the training, you need to engage a adrenal response, you're, saturating yourself in cortisol now i 'm sure people who are more knowledgeable about things like cortisol and adrenaline you know may be able to you know question what i 'm saying and and i'm open to this and i 'm going to something I want to learn more about and see if we can discuss this in more detail down the road but i'm what i 'm hypothesizing is that it's possible that like we might be able to tangibly demonstrate that it's destructive because of the higher level of stress we experience from that in a sense that could maybe mean that discipline, which is supposed to be about, we've said, you know, avoiding self-indulgence indulge, and eschewing um, things like feeling feelings and whatnot, actually isn't doing that at all. That it's an adrenal addiction, right? That to engage in discipline in order to get that to work for you, you have to constantly go to that adrenal state, which is this elevated state and, you know, getting amped and pumped up and, you know the, you know, let's, you know, effing go mentality, right? That sort of thing is maybe that core of addictive response. So let's we're going to stop here for this section and we're going to pick it up. We're going to do one more segment and we're going to conclude and explore some of these more ideas in there. But I'm trying to keep each episode posting under an hour. So we'll stop here and then we'll quickly try to upload the next segment uh, to pick that up.